All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. Audio test is done, Ethan. We're going live right now, man. So I'm um, sitting down with uh, Ethan O'Brien and Dr. Sasha 
Laskovich. Laskovich. Okay, Dr. B. Dr. B. Um, so we're here tonight to be able to talk about concussions and everything concussions and everything related around it. So uh, we're going to start with a little backstory from Ethan to figure out like why Ethan's here tonight. So kind of like drop us line, Ethan. Tell us what's going on. For sure. So uh, I've experienced a lot of concussions throughout my uh, throughout my past 10, 15 years. Um, I had my first concussion when I was 11 from ice hockey. Um, it was a, a head-on collision with another player. We had both ended up falling backwards. Um, I'm not sure if the other guy smashed his head on the ice, but I smashed my head on the ice. Um, I went off the rink, and back then, this was about probably 15 years ago, so yeah. there wasn't a whole lot of education for coaches around what to do for concussions, and like I was pretty seriously concussed, but as a kid, being 11 years old, you want to just get back out there and win the game, right? You don't yeah. really care about your head or anything like that. Weren't you wearing a helmet or anything? Or? I was, yeah, yeah, but the helmets weren't very good back then. Mm-hmm. Like technology's come a lot further these days. Yeah. Um, and just because I hit my head so hard on the on the ice in the back of my head, it just I guess really damaged my brain. And so, anyways, I went back into the game after five or ten minutes, mm-hmm. finished playing the game, and then I was lined up to go home with another friend and hang out with him for a few hours until my dad could come pick me up. And um, so we started hanging out at his house after about an hour or so. I started feeling like super sick to my stomach, and like throw up, or I was gonna like just pass out, and I didn't know what was going on. So I called my dad, like, "Hey, dad, I'm really sick. Can you come pick me up? Like, um, I don't know what's going on." He picks me up. I go home. I just like lay down and just kind of rest and fall asleep, sleep for the night. I wake up the next morning to go to the bathroom, try and get out of bed, and I just have like throbbing pain in my head, like worse than I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, just right then, I was like, "Oh crap! Like something's." really wrong because um, I tried to go to the bathroom and I just like felt just so bad like vertigo and like sick to my stomach and such a bad headache that I could hardly even walk to the bathroom and I ended up crawling to the bathroom for the next about seven to ten days um, just crawling out of my bed crawling to the bathroom crawling to the dining table eating food laying on the floor to eat my food crawling back to bed just laying in bed um, watching TV hurt my eyes because of the stimulus from it um, that's not a very common thing in concussions is uh, people have like photophobia, it's called, I believe, yeah. um, where they have issues with blue light or light sensitivity, light sunlight afterwards. So I was experiencing that a lot. So did you ever kind of figure out, like, I, I'm, I'm sure at, like at that time it was still probably like a mystery, like why you were feeling this way. So like, like what was the bridge? Did anybody understand like, like what was the issue, like where your symptoms were coming from, um, you know, and like, did anybody ever figure out like why like that fall was so bad? Like, you know, did you hit like a certain part of your head? You know, like like was it like just the impact alone? Like, what was what was kind of like the analysis after the fact? Well, I think Doctor B might have a have, have good impact uh, uh, input on that specific subject because um, he deals with a lot of people that have falls where they fall back and smash their head, mm-hmm. um, and he also has a very unique perspective on what might be going on up in there. So maybe you want to weigh in on that. Sure. Let's uh let's kind of go like let's peel back a little bit forward um, just to be able to kind of like clarify because you said like like one did have you had more than one concussion like have they all kind of oh, been yeah. from the same thing like was it always like hockey or was it something different like you know maybe kind of just like finish painting the picture sure. of, you know okay. like your yeah your... um so basically after I had that concussion um I uh, I my parents started like you know, taking me to doctors and they, they, they basically diagnosed me with a concussion from my symptoms, but they basically just said, go home and rest. You should feel fine in a week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went home and I rested, I rested 10 days. 
and I was still having issues with even getting up and walking around and I couldn't go to school. And so then we went back to the doctor and he said, okay, well, we'll send you into a specialist. Um, so then I had to wait a few more weeks to get into a specialist. Meanwhile, I'm trying to get back to school because I've already missed two weeks of school. And um, uh, so I get back into school, but I'm still having issues with like headaches. I can't really do PE class and stuff. Um, but I'm trying to get back into my other life. And none, none of the doctors that I had seen up to that point really gave me any more advice than just rest and you should feel better soon. So. Um, and how long ago was that? Like, you know, like just to kind of like time frame wise. So you're like 11 uh, at like this first concussion. Like, yeah. you know, like how long ago? So that was would that? be 16 years ago now. 16 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then like, have you had any more concussions since then, since that one? Yeah, definitely. I, I estimate it at around 10 concussions. Mm -hmm. I kind of forget. Like, I don't have like a running tally going or anything. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, it's been around 10, I'd say. And has um, it always been from hockey, or has it been from other sports too? No, or? there's been other things, like uh, one time I got like hit, beamed in the head really hard with a dodgeball, and that gave me like concussion-like symptoms for a couple weeks. Um, hit in the back of the head with basketball, um, chunk of ice smashed over my head, things yeah. like that. <laughs> and um, like, from what you know now, just like from your perspective, not maybe from the clinical perspective yet, but from your perspective, do you think they all stem from that first initial like impact, that first initial injury, and like they're all <coughs> a result after that? Yeah, well, I think that first injury really like made me a lot weaker and more susceptible to having more concussions. Mm -hmm. So then after that point, like you know, another person that may not have had that first concussion like I had might get hit in the head with a basketball and have no issues but because I already had a brain injury um, and multiple brain injuries leading up to that then point. I feel that it made me more susceptible to and more easily to have a to have a brain injury okay and like what are some of like the the lasting impacts that you felt from this like what what's the the spin-off of having all this this trauma to your brain well i found that um just like uh issues in school with learning and whatnot mm -hmm. um uh they, like for example when i was in when i was 11 i was in grade six and before this concussion i had straight a's in like all eight of the subjects in my class um, by the end of the school, or like the, so the, this happened after the second term. So in like my third term, fourth term, my grades dropped to like B minuses, C pluses, Cs. And like that was out of character for me. And like I wasn't, I wasn't able to remember things on cl in class. I was getting frustrated because like I was just having a lot of different mental issues with, with learning and cognition. Yeah. Um, then I experienced it again um, in university in my first year. Um, the, about eight months prior to that, I had a really bad concussion as well, where I got hit from behind and um, separated my shoulder at the same time. I had ligament damage in my neck. And um, when I went into university after that head injury, I guess I was still having issues because I was really struggling in, in class and blanking out on tests, even though it was like simple mm -hmm. things. I'm like, I know what this equation should be, but it like just wouldn't fully materialize for me. Yeah. And, um, so Did it ever come um, like full circle? So from you know like grade six to grade twelve or first year university, did you ever get back to having straight A's? Uh, yep. Yeah. Like grade twelve, I had straight A's, um, and then um, I actually finished uh, high school a semester early so I could get into working. Um, but then in between that period of finishing grade twelve and university, I had a really bad concussion, and then I dropped down to like getting. C's and D's and F's and stuff like that in university and I was actually on academic probation after my first year and so I was like holy crap like I really need to either like figure out how to like uh, better optimize my 
body so that my brain can work better, so mm-hmm. I can think better, like learn different strategies of like how to study better, how to learn things, like other techniques that other people have used for learning mm-hmm. and memorizing. So I really started focusing in on those in years two and three. And then by the time I got to my last year of university, I was on the, um, I went from academic probation to be on the, the uh, Dean's Honor Roll. Oh, great. Yeah. Was in university. So Sweet. I had a big turnaround just through kind of taking a holistic approach and, mm-hmm. and trying to optimize my body like naturally that way. Awesome. Cool. All right, Dr. Bean. How did you become doctor, doctor, and what kind of fills in, walks the road, and why do you um, like specialize, or why do concussions like why is it such a, a a passion for you? Like, how did we get to the point of sitting here tonight? Fill us in, oh. A to B. <clears throat> All right. Well, initially, I became a chiropractor, wanted to become a chiropractor for a totally different reason that was not concussion related. It had to do with my hip as a kid growing up and playing soccer after about 20 minutes, and my leg would go completely numb and dead, and I felt like a heavy piece of meat that I couldn't do anything with, and my dad was seeing a chiropractor for a herniated disc, and he said, why don't you go see this guy for that? And I did, and he took some x-rays, gave me a heel lift, gave me about eight adjustments, and, and I was dealing with that problem for about two and a half years at the time where medical specialists were telling me I need to stop playing sports, or I need my muscles aren't strong enough, or whatever other reason they were giving me. <clears throat> and it turned out that when this chiropractor did what he did, and he gave me this little heel lift for a period of time and adjusted me back into alignment, that all my problems went away after two years of, of battling with this and just the experience of, of the uh, friendly atmosphere, the outgoing attitude and everything in the office, I said, I want to do what that guy does. <clears throat> and so I, at the age of 12, said I want to become a chiropractor. And I never swayed from that. So I literally went from um, back then in Alberta junior high into high school, knowing that I wanted to take the prerequisites to be able to go into chiropractic school. And, but ultimately, <clears throat> By dumb luck as it would have it, I had already chosen this path. Then I was playing university football, and in my fourth year, um, just a run-of-the-mill tackle after I threw the ball, I was playing quarterback, and I got wrapped up by a linebacker who came through after I threw the ball, and it wasn't a hard hit, but we just fell backwards, and it was on the <clears throat> hard ground in Alberta, Edmonton. And I was wearing a helmet, you know, top of the line for the time, and the back of my head hit the ground and literally I was, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was knocked out for a split second or a few seconds and then I got up and went off the field automatically, adrenaline or what have you. And then um, we were, the other team was three and out and so we were going to go back in and the coach basically called me and I was usually standing beside him and I ended up, I was coincidentally sitting on the bench joking with guys um, and they, I always joked and so they just assumed everything was normal. And then the coach called me and I, someone finally got a hold of me because I wasn't hearing him. And he basically said, okay, go run this play. And basically it was the simplest play in our playbook. And I said, okay. And I took three steps and I turned around and I said, what's that? And he basically called a timeout and said, you know, this kid's concussed. And so they did all the concussion stuff on me and, and ultimately um, diagnosed me with a concussion. And I you know, followed the protocol. I was you know, off, off everything for a week and then slowly started easing back into it. But other than the subjective testing that is done, so you know, asking you what day it is, where are we, you know, what are we doing here, what's the score, who's the prime minister, and all these things, um, there was really no diagnostic measures taken to determine exactly what had happened. The notion was you got, you know, your your head rattled and you got a concussion and it's all going to settle down. And ultimately, fast forward now, 20, 26 years later. I've come to the conclusion that it's not that simple. 
And as Ethan and I have talked about many times, when you have uh, an injury or a blow to the head like that, that involves your entire body accelerating in a particular direction and then your head being the first contact point, in my case, which it was, but then ultimately the bones underneath the head still have a momentum and an accelerative speed that needs mm -hmm. to be stopped or decelerated somehow. So when my head stops, my first neck bone, which right is right under my head, it continues to accelerate until it's slowed down, whether it's by hitting the ground or by ligaments becoming tight and stopping that motion or muscles engaging and trying to slow down that motion. And then the same thing happens with the second neck bone, third neck bone, it's a domino effect. And so unfortunately, when that kind of a traumatic event happens, that happens with that speed, um, <clears throat> the ability for the nerves to tell the muscles what to do is nowhere near as fast as the event reaching its point of maximum chance of causing injury. Mm -hmm. So the acceleration that's reached the maximum acceleration happens at about one-tenth of a second of that unsuspected event, whereas our muscles can engage every three-tenths of a second. And so the muscles are two-tenths of a second too late to try to protect or slow down that motion. So the only thing that can slow it down is either some surface that the bones come into contact with or the ligaments doing their job, which would be to prevent movement of the bones. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, I've found <clears throat> the ligaments actually fail to do that job. And so they either stretch or they get torn to some extent, rendering the bones just underneath the skull excessively mobile. They move too much after that, and it's a permanent change. So when the ligaments get stretched out, they have no ultimate capacity to recoil back to their normal length and then heal. So any healing, if you will, that happens will happen with that ligament in its elongated dysfunctional position, mm -hmm. which means that from that moment on, and I'm living proof of that 26 years later, and I have thousands of patients from not just here, but all around the world who have the same problem that was at some point in time diagnosed as a simple blow to the head concussion kind of thing, but yet there's nothing that has ever been found inside their heads from CT scans and MRI scans. And so the, the secret lies in this, this little area right underneath the head when the first and second neck bones are, and when you damage those ligaments, that permanent change with those bones moving more than they're intended to move results in <clears throat> several things which yield backflow up into the skull, which basically causes the brain to be compressed from within the skull. And one of those things is that surely the change in position of those vertebrae, even if it's a millimeter or even two millimeters more than it should, it creates a narrowing of the general region where the, the extra movement is. And that just so happens to be the region of the last part of the brainstem, which has the responsibility to control a bunch of very important bodily functions, such as balance, equilibrium, heart rate, blood pressure, respiration, digestion, stomach acid, uh, vision, hearing, or balance, which would be the vestibular system. <clears throat> so all that stuff gets skewed, but not to the point where they can actually do a scan of that area and say, hey, looks like your brainstem's been bruised or scarred mm -hmm. because it doesn't actually, the ligaments inhibit that from happening initially with the, with, the, with the smack or the hit. But then the fact that they're loose after that point in time allows for certain moments, certain positions, and certain activities to cause those bones to slightly move more than they should, which they shouldn't because the number one job for them is to protect the nervous system and not to actually impinge upon it. So when they start impinging upon the nervous system, which would be in this case the last part of the brainstem, it skews electrical signals going through there. And so if they're altered in any slight way, it alters what they're trying to tell parts of your body to do. So for example, telling the heart to beat 
faster than it should when it is supposed to be slower and vice versa, telling stomach acid to be released when there's no food present, so stuff like that, but then ultimately our, our system, our healthcare system, or, or medicine teaches us that you look for problems in that organ, and I would suggest with people with pre-existing injuries or histories of injuries, the nine times out of 10, those dysfunctioning organs aren't actually dysfunctional organs, they're doing exactly what they're being told to do, and they're being told to do something either at the wrong time or too slow or too fast, which results in them doing something that would be construed as abnormal. Um, so that's one thing is that the bones will directly put mild pressure on the, that part of the brainstem altering nerve flow. The second thing is that part of the brainstem is what drains the fluid made in our brain that's supposed to then drain through our spinal canal and come back up and get reabsorbed and it circulates continuously like that. So when you get a narrowing of that tube that drains the CSF from the brain down and then allows it to come back up, the brain continues to make the CSF because it's made by blood beating up against the blood-brain barrier, plasma shooting across, the brain using that plasma, which is basically water and proteins, to make brain fluid. The brain fluid then is supposed to circulate, come back, get reabsorbed, and get shunted back into the, the blood circulatory system, and so it continues to go like that. So because the heart keeps beating, you keep shunting plasma across that blood-brain barrier, the brain keeps making CSF, but it's not draining as fast as it should, so it keeps accumulating. And the skull is a thick space, and so when that fluid starts to accumulate, it starts to actually compress the brain down, and ultimately, what most people find is that when they go and lie down, for whatever reason, that allows that extra excess fluid to dissipate. And that's why most people, when they're concussed or having these concussive-like symptoms, um, feel at their best when they're laying down. Do we know why? Like, do you like? like well, I think partially. Yeah, I think partially it's because the position of the bones when you're when you're when you have an unstable or a hypermobile uh, portion of your spine, you would think that. Um, unless you somehow challenge it front to back, it's not gonna move, but the forces of gravity pull basically our head down onto our body, and if it, it would be nice if we were perfectly positioned where everything was parallel, but the fact that our joint orientations are never perfectly parallel with the ground, you'll have that compressive force of the head going down, and then because there's some angulation to the joints, you also have a shear effect. Yep. And so when you're vertical, that shear effect takes much more precedence than when you're laying down. When you're laying down, things seem to recalibrate better, mm -hmm. and I think then that restores the circulatory pattern of that CSF being able to drain and being able to reabsorb. And well, and even if it's like inhibited <clears throat> by like 30% or 50%, like it just if it's inhibited to some extent, then then when you lay down, there's just like a better flow, a better channeling, then there would just be like less pressure buildup too. Correct. So like you know, yeah. So I guess like kind of peeling like a few onion skins back, like. For one, like let's just talk ligaments. Like, like what is, how could you assess it? Like, how would one person know, or like how can you retrain the body, or like what can you do to be able to strengthen these ligaments again if you even understand that that is the beginning of your problem? Right. So, strengthening ligaments is is um, I hear it a lot. It's not a possibility. Ligaments have no contractility to them, so you can't strengthen them. The only thing that ligaments can do is scar up and I think there's there's a slight possibility and an injury would have to be caught right away where you can put those body parts, in this case the vertebrae, in a proper position if you could figure out what the improper position was that they're in. And then in the active healing phase, which is soon after that injury, that if those ligament fibers were approximated, I think the scarring phase that happens, which is what happens when ligaments try to quote-unquote heal, would happen in a shortened position, but unfortunately these things are never really caught in the hot active phase, because usually things are kind of, let's see how things go, let's watch and wait, and then if it doesn't resolve, let's look at what's going on now. 
but by that time these tissues have undergone their possible rehabilitative and reconstructive phase, but they've undergone it in an elongated position. So um, strengthening them is, is, like I said, it's not, a, not an actual physical, physiologic, physiological possibility. So the only thing that can uh, compensate for the elongated ligaments are the tiny little core muscles that span the same gap as those ligaments do. Mm-hmm. And those little muscles, um, fortunately, are under basically reflex control. So when the muscle undergoes a slight stretch, more than it's used to <clears throat> experiencing, in the case where the ligament's been damaged, the muscle will stretch and automatically contract. So it's actually exercising just because of the fact that there's hypermobility or instability in that joint segment. It gets to the point of being basically overloaded so it's working harder than it's supposed to, and in order to protect itself from tearing, it actually goes and seizes. And when it goes and seizes, you have what people, you know, refer to as "I feel stuck," or yeah. it feels like I'm, you know, restricted range of motion, pain, headaches, the whole shoot and shebang. And when that does happen, if it so just so happens to seize in a, in a way that it actually moves those bones out of position to the opposite direction of where they were protecting, now you're going to have a longer-lasting mild compression of the brainstem in this in this uh, scenario, which will result in a flare-up of symptoms or a bit of a longer-lasting segment of your life that you're symptomatic, mm-hmm. whether that goes from a day to being a week or two weeks, and then it sort of fizzles away because you generally end up taking it easier and doing less and resting more, and things sort of recalibrate. But ultimately, that's the only thing a person has to, to, to depend on once these ligaments have been injured, shy of you know doing invasive procedures, which would be basically surgical things, which um, for the neck or for the spine, they don't really have like for the knee where they can, you know, chop out one of your tendons and double it over and, and drill it through your knee and, and recreate an ACL, for example. Yep. <clears throat> they don't have that for the spine. So for the spine, when they deem, when it's deemed that you have hypermobility or instability, um, the only option that they have there is fusion. <clears throat> so you take two bones that are moving too much and you turn them into one bone mm-hmm. where they don't move at all. Unfortunately. The way the body works is those 26 bones that we have in our spine, um, you can't isolate an injury to one spot. So oftentimes when you have an injury to a region, it'll be focused on one spot, but the adjacent spots will also have a lesser but also significant injury. Mm -hmm. And once you fuse the most significantly visible injury through surgical means, all of a sudden now you have more problems at the segments above and below, which were problematic before, but the problem was dissipated. that fused or to spread out and once you start you know fusing things that you think are the most problematic all of a sudden other things become more problematic than they were before uh, that's just how the body works and so um, these these little core muscles are not trainable per se by conscious training they're reflexive muscles so they're basically proprioceptively uh, geared and, tra- and, and, and activated automatic or autonomic muscles so they're basically righting every wrong at any given time that's all under control of our brain. So any time we try to make a, a move or a change in position, we initiate a movement, but that in, in order for that movement to not be basically at the end to overshoot, like we want to grab a pen or something, we don't want to overshoot it and come back and overshoot and come back. All these little tiny movements on a microscopic level are being controlled so that it looks like it's a fluid movement. We pick up a pen as opposed to overshooting, coming back and overshooting this way, coming and overshooting and eventually getting to it. So all this is happening on, on, on a microscopic scale, on a microsecond level, even past nanosecond level, that's all being controlled by these little core muscles in order to have a fluid motion. And so when that 
core muscle seizes, then it's basically rendered inactive. So stretching it is futile because you're probably going to either injure it or aggravate something else and trying to force it to release. And exercising it is futile because it's in its most shortened position and it's not even susceptible to exercise. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. And then, you know, kind of like as you're talking, I'm just trying like formulating in my mind. Like, So is an athlete at an advantage or a disadvantage of having like the extra muscle tissue or even if they have the extra muscle tissue like, you know, in the neck, um, you know, one would say that they're probably going to be a little bit tighter, a little bit more tissue. Like, like, how do these things play into their advantage or their disadvantage? Unfortunately, sheer power is not the same as responsiveness. And so you see this a lot in football a lot. You'll see really big, bulky guys that get concussed. And you see these little wiry receivers that get bounced around all game long that basically abate being concussed for a long time and sometimes for their whole career. There's always the freak event, but you'll see... The little wiry guys, and generally the little wiry guys have a much faster twitch to their neuromuscular system, and I think that allows for not necessarily a better prevention, but a, a lower risk, I guess, for getting that concussion because the response time of their muscles to um, uh, an acceleration stimulus, I think, is faster than someone who's just strong. So I think if a, a person could ultimately, an athlete could ultimately combine those two, strength with responsiveness, and I'm talking about automatic responsiveness, mm -hmm. where the stimulus happens and those muscles engage, um, that would be the ideal specimen for injury prevention and also recovery from injury. Yeah. So would this be like a, like a good selling case for, um, you know, like having, um, you know, like mobility to the muscle, you know, like loose muscle tissue or like, you know, like stretching, rolling, dynamic work, you know, like a little bit more like functional movements, you know, like where like you're 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 training the body not under like specific loads, and you're just allowing more elasticity to the muscles so that you have like faster like neurological sequencing. You're just like yes. so stretching, I'm not a fan of. Yeah, um, that's one of the things, um, especially not the way that we've all sort of been brought up stretching. Right, mm -hmm. you go and try to reach maximally. There's no neuromuscular facilitation happening because ultimately muscles can be tight, but you need to basically allow the nerves to feel like they're safe in order to actually accomplish a proper lengthening of a muscle. But I find far too often that it's not so much that tight muscles are simply tight muscles. They develop trigger points, and whether you roll, whether you do acupressure, whether you do some kind of hands-on, seems to provide the best results that also at the same time elongates the muscle fibers, which equates to a stretch. Whereas if you don't manually hands-on that muscle, whether it's your own muscle or you're a therapist working on somebody else, I don't think the effect is as dramatic as when you actually put your hands on there and actually flush out lactic acid, flush out cytokines or any of the other noxious chemicals that are in there and release those trigger points. Because if you have several trigger points in a muscle, and in essence, a, a muscle sarcomere is a bunch of striations, it's almost like a, like a groundworm, mm -hmm. like an earthworm. And when you develop a trigger point, the striations in the area of the trigger point approximate but there's a fixed number of striations, so the ones on either side of the trigger point elongate. Mm. Elongate yep. the sarcomeres and compressed sarcomeres, they don't function. So when you release the trigger point, now you've got a neutralization of that. So if you neutralize a bunch of those trigger points, you will, in effect, lengthen that entire muscle, but keep it responsive. Because mm -hmm. I think if a muscle has trigger points, which are rendered dysfunctional or inactive muscle segments or portions within a muscle, and you go and stretch it, you'll you'll obtain flexibility to that muscle, but you won't restore its optimal function, which prevents injury and allows for power and explosiveness. 
So, like, how long has, like, static stretching been, like, outdated for? You know, like, because, like, essentially what you're saying is, like, you know, say if, like, you know, for lack of a better example, like, if you have, like, a golf ball, like, that's just buried inside of your muscle and your static stretching is doing nothing to be able to prevent that golf ball from being there. But if you take, like, you know, say, like, you're doing your trigger point work, which is basically, like, your hammer and your chisel and you're kind of breaking up that golf ball, now you don't have that golf ball there anymore. So that's kind of, like, your point, static stretching, maintains the golf ball but like the trigger point work the acupressure like like that eliminates the golf ball per se so how long have we known that for because like that's always the thing is like we're especially in this type of field when it comes to health and nutrition when it comes to like health and wellness you know like preventative measures we're still stuck like we're recycling and regurgitating old information that we know is outdated and a lot of people refuse to kind of get out of that lane so it's always nice when people are willing to be able to come along and say we're not traveling that lane anymore. We actually haven't been there for years or even arguably decades, you know, because like we just need to get those voices out more, which is like your voice right now. Ultimately, I think static stretching has been um, proven to be ineffective probably since about the 50s, if not sooner than that or earlier than that. But I think ultimately, um, and I say this with all due respect for all healthcare professions, all of our healthcare professions probably run at least three to four decades behind or the curricula that we are taught in our healthcare schools, whether it's chiro, massage, physio, medicine, specialties of medicine, neuro, ortho. Um, in general, the curricula that they're taught is about three to four decades behind what is currently being researched, currently being developed. And, so and we know that's primarily just for insurance reasons, right? Like where they just say, well, these theories are semi-hypothetical at this point in time or they're not completely proven to be like the latest cutting edge so like if you step into that lane you're kind of stepping outside of what insurance may cover that's why a lot of people are scared or like like textbook wise because they even say from like textbooks by the time that something is proven and then the ability to be able to write these te textbooks be able to issue them like in schools or people can like you know attain this knowledge like you're you're it's so far outdated like again like you're talking like a decade or multiple decades behind already. I think it's it's more than just insurance. I think it's uh, it's logistics. So to have to reprint a bunch of textbooks um, to make amends to something that is current, it's not so much that it's not, not proven. It, it, it gets proven and it gets reproven, but before enough people see or understand that it's been reproven and they say, hey, let's pull out those you know, old uh, antiquated textbooks and let's add this to it or let's change it that requires a lot of um, manpower money and the willingness uh, for change that I think uh, once you get into a, a pattern or a, a groove in your training in your healthcare, in your administer practicing whatever medical field you're practicing the last thing that I think you're waiting to happen is for them to basically say, okay, this is what you've been practicing all along now. Well, now we know something different. You got to change how you do everything. And I think that that has to be a slow process. And once guys are in the field, I think they're happy that um, they can do things that they're familiar and comfortable with. And, and I think there's, there's a select few uh, small groups within every profession that are interested because either they don't see the results that they think should, they should be getting or they, they question things that maybe don't make sense based on the demographic of patient that they get to see a lot more for whatever reason that they start thinking to themselves, something here doesn't quite add up, doesn't make sense. And it's not that what I was doing is wrong, it's just that there's a little bit more 
if I you know pick from here, grab from there, and and and, and use utilize this, it'll make more sense. And and once you start trying it out and start seeing the um, the continuity and the repetitiveness that you can see, and that's basically what's happened to me is that um, when I found out that video x-ray exists or motion x-ray exists, it's probably the oldest form of um, x-ray utilization that we have because when Willem Rankin was x-raying his wife's hand when he discovered this thing, it was, uh, it was a moving x-ray, it was fluoroscopy. Mm -hmm. It was basically illuminating her hand and she could move it and he thought it was cool. He gave her cancer and she died because <laughs> of it, uh, because she was overexposed. But at the same time, this, this video x-ray has been around since 1895. It's the oldest form of x-ray and, and I find that it renders uh, for the purpose of indirectly assessing ligament integrity in a person's neck, it's by far the best means to do that because you can functionally assess the neck and based on deductive reasoning you can say we know that this ligament is supposed to attach from here to here and if it does in a healthy way or normal way there should be X amount of motion or no motion in this particular plane between those two bones. And then when you go and conduct that functional imaging and you can watch it real time, so it's not a static snapshot, it's real fluid motion, you can tell that, you know, hey, this is supposed to be zero or minimal. And then all of a sudden you see, you know, 3.4 millimeters of slippage or uh, 15 degrees of angulation. And there are norms for that within the neck. And you can basically, with, without a shadow of a doubt, say that ligament is compromised. And then you link it back to the symptoms that the person is having and what they're telling you. And it makes per perfect sense. So as you're like saying that, I think of like how many people, you know, who are experiencing like concussed symptoms or, you know, like just, I guess like if you just broad scope, like the, like the entire professional industry of like healthcare, like in general, no matter what like modality we're talking about, is that how many people seek inappropriate care because they're not getting the proper care because somebody's not willing to step outside the box or challenge themselves professionally or really understand like the, to the degree of what you're explaining it now. You know, so maybe like, you know, like, like I see the great benefit and you kind of like break down, like what are some of the questions like somebody could ask, like their, their healthcare professional, so they can understand whether or not that this person was kind of like living more on like the cutting edge and like was not just kind of going through the standard checks that, you know, may not be like in their best interest. Like what was some of the kind of like the verbiage or the questions they could ask so they could kind of shuffle through healthcare professionals till they get to somebody like you for people who don't have access to you. You're talking about the patient? Yeah, the, the patient. That's injured? Yeah. Well, first I go back to the first thing that you said. I don't think people are getting inappropriate care. They're basically getting what the professionals and they deem as appropriate care because it is sort of the standard. But my, you know, fortune by misfortune is the fact that I, I live, been living this for 26 years. And so when someone sits across from me and tells me that they feel like their ears are plugged nonstop or that they have blurry vision at times, but it's not always that they sometimes have heart palpitations when they're upright, when they lean forward to empty the dishwasher, they get you know a little bit woozy, or when they're looking up for a little while, you know, stargazing or whatever, they have these symptoms. Those, those things generally don't mean much to most medical practitioners. They're just really vague, um, non-descriptive things that could be you know, from anxiety, depression, you name, there's a, probably a dozen things that they could brush it off as, especially if they've known that person for you know, 15, 20 years since they were a kid, they say, oh yeah, I know your parents, my family. You're probably just you know having anxiety or some family issues or you know a rough time with your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is. But for me, those things tip off very, very significant you know ponderings in my mind as to you know 
is the possibility that this person has upper cervical ligament damage. And um, I think that a lot of the time, <clears throat> the things that a person who's suffered an injury needs to be cognizant of is, is the things that just don't seem right to them. <clears throat> for example, um, hot flashes, for example. You know, the thing that when I, when I first got my injury, for the first little for the first little while, the first thing that changed for me is that I got blurry vision. So I used to have actually really good vision, and I was sitting in my university class where I tried to sit somewhere in the middle. And, and before that, I could crystal clear. I could see the projection screen. I could read all the stuff, and I started having to squint. And I started having to you know blink a bunch. And you'll see me now, whenever I do anything that's on video, I blink a lot, and I have almost these little um, odd twitches, and I'm clearing my throat all the time. So those are all little things that <clears throat> tie into the last part of the brainstem, there's, you know, the last four cranial nerves, 9 through 12, originate on there, and so the 10th being the vagus, which is responsible for tons of stuff that is autonomic, mm -hmm. uh, from digestion to heart rate to blood pressure and all that stuff, um, and then the 9th, which is responsible for, you know, a bunch of the laryngeal and pharyngeal muscles that would work your voice box, and so uh, one thing that I, I find a lot of people have that have these injuries is, you know, they have to clear their throat a lot, they feel like their ears are plugged all the time, they will have blurry vision, they will have, you know, some kind of heart fluttering on occasion. They will have digestive stuff. And what I had, so in addition to the blurry vision, was I have obviously headaches, which weren't really that frequent at the time. Um, I would have a little bit of neck pain, which wasn't too bad. I would be able to pop it out and it would be good. And the reason I was able to pop it all the time is because I was unstable or, or hypermobile. And so the other stuff that I was experiencing, which was the you know the plugged ears nonstop, and I still to this day, nonstop, all day long, every day, have plugged ears, and I'll either you know do this to unplug them or whatever else. And that's part of my, my twitch sequence or my tick sequence that I have in addition to the blinking that's become automatic for me. And I don't know I have it until I look at a video and I'm like, where am I blinking like a million miles an hour? Um, and then the other thing was I'd have the odd episode and I had it in the beginning probably about three or four times a year where I would literally crash. <clears throat> so I would have, I'd be feeling decent and then all of a sudden I'd feel flu-like. So I'd have like hot flashes, fever, and I'd be shivering almost like I was going to come down with something ridiculous and then I would have to pee way more than a person should have to pee without actually being hydrated. And they would pee, be pee there, like, and it would be usually a darker color. And then I would inevitably get home and I would literally just say to my wife, or, or even before I was married, I would just literally just go hit the deck and I would sleep for about 14 hours. And then I'd get up the next day thinking, oh man, I'm gonna have flu or I'm gonna be sick or whatever, and I'd be perfectly fine. And, and in the worst cases, it would last a portion of that day to just go away. It was, it was the weirdest thing. I think oh, I'm going to be out for a week now, you know, flu, but it would be gone. And then that got to being you know, once a year, twice a year. And then and now I'm at the point because I figured out a bunch of stuff along the way and it ties into those little core muscles and, and resetting them and dealing with them so that they can actually support my unstable neck uh, for a period of time where the mild compression of my brainstem resulting in this cascade of, of ailments and symptoms that that would be possibly considered, you know, kidney problems, stomach problems, intestinal problems, and all that stuff. I found directly linked to my uh, my brainstem area and the instability in my neck. Um, that uh, I would say I live a relatively normal life now, mm -hmm. or I've actually adapted to see this as my new normal life, and I'm you know perfectly functional in it. And I do have bad days, and, and uh, occasionally, and and he's experienced it where you know. It's no different than any other day. It's just all added up and, and, and accumulated up. And uh, I get depression, mild depression in that brainstem, and I feel like a bag of garbage. And I'm you know, irritable, not very, I can't concentrate. Um, 
forgetful, can't multitask. I even got have had to the point where I actually have you know tremors, where mm -hmm. I might let my wife see this, and it's it's involuntary. Like I'll literally be mad, and luckily it doesn't happen very often. But I figured out a way by by treating myself uh, to those specific muscles that I can literally get those symptoms gone and be back to my normal uh, within a matter of you know 20 30 minutes. So I guess like a couple questions that come to mind there, like for one, do you think because of like, you know, like concussions that presumably kind of being like on the rise, we're coming like a generation that's going to progress through life that have had maybe more concussions than generations before. And if like the tremors, like could there be the potential for misdiagnosis of things like Parkinson's, um, you know, just things like, you know, like working in an office trigger symptoms that are like concussed symptoms because of like hypertension in the neck, you know, maybe like cervical compression because of hypertension in the neck, um, you know, like, you know, like what, what are some of the things because like I kind of see like as you're talking, it's just like, well, you could have like concussed like symptoms simply because like occupation, just think of how many people like work in office now where there's like, my neck is chronically stiff, you know, like their posture's terrible, you know, like sunken shoulder, like a little bit of like scoliosis or kyphosis, you know, like where like there's this trickle down effect where like, can you get concussed like symptoms, but actually never having a concussion because of those kind of issues, like posture issues, you know, hypertension in the neck, you know, like, like throw it in. Tech neck, it's called. It's yeah. Because yeah. everyone's all hunched over their computers. Yeah. Concussive, like, I would, I would personally, on my personal experience and my personal life and living with this and then see thousands of people with this, uh, in a perfect specimen, never injured, I would say no. I would say no. The question that I think alludes for example, you're, you're alluding to the Parkinson's, and it's also being researched now with, with respect to MS, is that that's a question that doesn't get asked, is do you have anything in your past, even if it's 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when you were three years old, fell off the monkey bars, is there an incident of an event where you either were knocked out for a second or you sustained some kind of a whiplash or a neck injury or a head injury? Those questions generally don't get asked because the time frame between that event, which didn't seem to have any consequence at the time other than maybe a couple of weeks and them going into a static job where they had a bad posture um, it rarely will someone get tipped off or, or tip themselves off and go you think it has to do with that because a human neck with no ligament injuries so a perfect specimen of health that's never undergone any kind of a whiplash type trauma or concussive trauma their ligaments will not stretch just by bad posture to the point of actually allowing brainstem compression and the concussive-like symptoms. It has to have an underlying pre-existing weakening so that when you put them in a static position, and a lot of people say this now, and that was the other thing that I mentioned, failed to mention is when I would, as the university student post-concussion, <clears throat> go to the movies with my friends or whatever, I literally could not sit for more than five minutes without repositioning and cracking my neck or doing something to basically alleviate this, this tension that you're talking about. And the tension builds up as the muscles start to alter their tone, mm -hmm. their resting tone to accommodate for that slow shift of a vertebrae because there's ligaments yeah. damaged in that area. And so this tension arises as a result of muscles trying to basically do their job properly, but you put them in, it's like having an isometric contraction, yeah. world's strongest man guys holding these milk jugs up. They can't do that for anywhere near as long as they can basically repetitively lift that th same thing with continuous flushing motion. Yeah. It's just, we're not made to be isometric animals. And so when you put someone in an isometric position with weakened ligament structures, those muscles will 
undergo more of a fail-safe mode faster in an eccentric loaded position, so an elongated negative type of position, than they will if you keep them moving. So people with these types of injuries do the best when they're randomly doing a bunch of stuff that's not overly exertional or overly time-consuming in any given position. Mm-hmm. Like think of like landscaping, you know, pick some weeds here for a couple minutes, you know, prune this and just keep active. I've had patients who have these injuries that have those types of jobs. They function the best out of all of my patients that have those issues. Whereas other people who, based on how the system perceives strenuous work and non-strenuous work, will sit behind a desk and feel like a bag of garbage. But yet that's seen as non-exertional work, even though it's extremely exertional for these types of injuries, for these types of problems. But so back to your question, I don't think that the normal individual will develop concussive web symptoms from a bad posture with a static job, unless there's an underlying thing that generally wasn't asked about or wasn't questioned uh, for them to basically trigger that memory of that event happening. I think that there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, with like I said, with the MS, <clears throat> they've done research now where they've tracked people with MS and, and done brain scans on them and, and CSF flow analyses. And ultimately, the majority of those individuals at the time of diagnosis, when they question them in, in retrospect, uh, allude to the fact that anywhere between 7 and 20 years prior to them being diagnosed with MS, they either had a car crash, a slip and fall, or some kind of sports injury. Oh, wow. That's and then, incredible. And then the other thing to that is they've, they've, there's some mild chiropractic techniques out there that use instrument adjusting. And so based on these MRIs, you can actually see the positioning of the C1 and C2, again, which is a static moment snapshot of what it looks like. But sometimes they get stuck in a particular position mildly for a longer period of time, like I said. And that results in sort of the cascade of things that you know perpetuate them, the pressure increase, and then the brain basically being starved off from within. And then parts of the brain will actually go into a hibernative state, which the MS scans see as sclerotic or scarred plaques. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually realign those bones in a lot of these MS cases, you can go and repeat the MRI a few minutes to a half hour later, and those scarred plaques are gone. Wow. In a lot of those cases, which indicates that there is some kind of a a suffocation effect happening to the actual brain from within based on linkage to positions of vertebrae in the upper neck. See, and like, you know, like what really this goes to like speak to me is just like how, how little we actually know in how like immediate some care is, you know, like think of like, you know, people like they see like these like scarred plaques on the brain, how like the intervention that could come along with that in any way, shape or form that is. And because we just don't know and we just don't understand, but there's also a part of that that thinks that we really do understand, you know, but like, like what's the trickle down effect of situations like that too. But um, I guess like another like subject that I just want to kind of touch on like briefly here or like we can kind of like get into it, like just give me like your opinion. So they've, you obviously probably aware like a lot of the concussion related research with like, like soldiers and bomb blasts, you know, and things like that. Um, but I've also been hearing things about like, you know, like DJs who are around like, you know, like these loud environments all the time with the bass pounding and it's like mimicking these things like, you know, like, like, what do you know about that where it's not like actual what is perceived to be trauma, but it's more like sound wave trauma that's causing these concussed symptoms or like these concussions or mild concussions of people because they're exposed to them like repeatedly, like they were saying like, you know, like construction workers on like jackhammers you know like, again like we have like you know bomb blasts you know like in the military we have djs we have these certain type of occupations where it's constant it's all the time you know and like 
they were also talking about um, like uh, like crane operators and like these um, guys that drive piles, you know, like they're pounding mm-hmm. the piles like in the ground where it's just shockwave after shockwave all day long. Like, like what do we know about concussions like that? Are they, are they just as severe? Are they not as severe? Like, what, like where does that rate on the scale of concussions? Well, I think generically those types of professions and those types of things, the question, again, the first question that I would always ask if someone like that with that type of occupation that didn't think that had anything to do other than their occupation, mm-hmm. I would ask the pre- preceding question as to their past and whether there was some kind of a trauma in the past. Because There would be more of a tendency for people in those professions to have concussive-like symptoms. So as a demographic, they do a lot more pounding. But in any demographic that you pull out of this out of society I think you're going to have a lot of people who have as a child had some kind of a neck or head injury that has never really properly been addressed and they've buried it in the back of their subconscious so then they go do this out of the normal occupation where it overexposes those particular tissues to motion that's not natural and with a DJ basically the eardrum has to basically collect all that information, send it through a nerve that goes into the brainstem and tells the brainstem to tell the brain what's going on. And so I think when you overexpose any kind of a nerve to stimulus, you're prone to inflaming it. Mm-hmm. If any kind of information transfer that happens more frequently than it should will result in a buildup of metabolism, which results in heat. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually have neural inflammation as a result of the nerve just being asked to do more than it should for longer than it should. Mm-hmm. And because that particular nerve is one of the brainstem nerves. It can result in it skewing, and the, 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 the nerves overlap each other to some extent. And same with their nuclei, which is basically the center of those nerves. And so they have in, influence on each other. Mm-hmm. So that could simply, that eighth cranial nerve could simply influence the ninth cranial nerve. And that's your vestibular nerve. So a person could have lightheadedness, dizziness, vertigo. Mm-hmm. That possibly has nothing to do with anything in the brain, but just the processing of the stimulus coming from external through the brainstem brain yeah yeah absolutely incredible like and again like like the, the key thing like the takeaway here for like most people is understand like like how there's always a domino effect there's always a cascade effect where like it's not just one specific symptom or like once like isolated incident like you know how all these symptoms kind of like cohabitate in this problem and like you know like these issues together and like they collectively influence the body and like you know because even like as you're talking there like one of the biggest things i thought like some of these people might end up in the military or in like kind of like these jobs that they might have not normally been in because they've had like this concussion that they might not be aware of and it's like you know change their decision making abilities or their learning capacity so they end up in a job that kind of put them in a higher risk situation to exacerbate the problems mm-hmm. you know to begin with so um another thing that i just want to kind of touch on too like what ethan brought up is that um the time frames, you know, like in between concussions, like how long we should rest, like what that rest kind of looks like, you know, like when we experience our first concussion, like say if we wait a month, is that appropriate? Then if we get another concussion, is it the same month or do we wait longer? You know, maybe kind of like step us through that process a little bit there. I think uh, after a person gets their initial or experiences an initial what would be deemed a concussion, um, I think a month is a safe period, but I think more importantly is tracking the subtle things that they might display, especially if it's a young person, um, such as continued irritability, rebelliousness, um, concentration issues, grades, 
um, being affected by this because all those things tie into basically neurological processing. And so young people or most people, uh, even because they look normal, the, they understand that if they are telling people around them, especially their loved ones who are very quick to say, oh, come on, suck it up kind of thing in most cases, that uh, them saying, you know what, I still feel like I got the ring in my ears or I still feel you know, a little bit blurry, they're generally not gonna continue to bring that up and they'll go back to an activity sooner than they should. And so those things, that, because they don't tend to wanna mention that to coaches, parents, things like that, I think parents and coaches should, should sort of keep a, a cognizant eye out or, or ear out to watch for you know how they interact with their teammates. Are they, you know, do they have a short fuse more so than they used to? Um, are they not comprehending certain concepts or certain plays when they're doing them or it's taking them longer to, even though they're able to perform them, that they're just not processing the information as, as quickly and as clearly and sharply as they used to. Um, and then the obvious, which are headaches and, and lightheadedness and, and things like that uh, once they go back into exertion. And I think when a person is reconcussed, I think the, the mechanism of the reconcussion needs to be, well, when you get concussed from the first time, I think the mechanism needs to be strongly evaluated and assessed, which would be basically be exactly how did you get hit? How are you positioned at the time of hit? You know what I mean? The simple um, example of that I can think of is Sidney Crosby. If you look at that, whatever it was, 2012 or 2011, a concussive hit that he had, um, he was basically had his head buried down and his head was turned trying to go for the puck and he was clipped just mildly basically from that opposite side which forced his neck into further turning and further side bending and he hit the ground or hit the ice like a sack of potatoes and I think it's because he injured his neck on that on that one play and, and damaged some ligaments which that, that with that motion tapped up against his brainstem and shut him down and um, where was I going with this? This is one of those problems. What was the question again? Oh, well, we can kind of, so I, I'm going to snowball the question into like, you know, like, um, like the time frames, like in between concussions, oh, yes. we should wait, but like, like what is the detriment of getting back in and getting a second concussion when you haven't fully healed, say like from the first one, or like, is there ever a reset? If I get a concussion and I actually wait the incubation period that I'm actually deemed to be fine or okay now, like, is it compounding, like, the effect is, of a concussion? It is. And assuming it's just a concussion where it's just your brain sloshing around inside your skull and there's no neck injury here, um, I think I think that that doesn't actually happen very often. But assuming that that did happen and that's what it was, then I think when a person felt better and they were able to do all the cognitive stuff without any issue, they weren't irritable anymore, um, I would say go back to the sport. And if you get reconcussed, if it seems like it's, a much more benign reason to be reconcussed, I think then a thorough assessment of the person's upper neck needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what's the similarity between you and Ethan? Because you guys kind of got like this same rough like like hit or like the trauma to the back of the head, and, you know, like first point of contact. Like, do you see a similarity between you and Ethan? Like, or like what makes um, like your and Ethan's problem like like the same? Or like Ethan, because he was gonna hop in there at the beginning, like during this explanation, where you were gonna say, okay, well, this is what I think it is. Like, like why do you think Ethan's was so bad? Or like, are your guys as similar? Or is there a way people hit the back of their head, like specifically as the first point of contact, that makes the symptoms even worse? Because it seems like Ethan's um, like hit and his concussion was quite severe for like what. Like some concussions like are 
Um, like, what would be the reason behind that? Well, we both have motion x-rays of our necks, which both display um, excessive mobility at C1, C2, our upper two neck bones, which result in all the brainstem stuff that I had uh, already explained. And so we have visible proof of actual physical damage at the exact same spot. And that's where I find in a, a huge percentage of people who are dealing with concussive-like symptoms, either through car crashes, sports hits, or even just simple you know, backyard slip and falls, ultimately that's the, that's the hinge point where if they're gonna persistently continue to have concussive-like symptoms, that will be the origin. And like I said, because most people will go get brain scans, whether it's a CT scan or an MRI, and those uh, equivocally come back as unremarkable in 99.9% of the cases. And so if there was something significant enough to skew the brain's functioning, um, it should, at least in more cases than so few, show something on the scans. I'd just like to add as well that um, Dr. B is the only one in Western Canada that has access to a motion x-ray machine, so he can see things that a lot of other doctors can't. Um, like I went for MRIs, I went for x-rays, like the traditional x-rays, and um, went and saw different specialists throughout my teenage years because I was still having, like years after that very first concussion, I was very, very susceptible to more concussions, having like long-term post-concussion symptoms like headaches and stuff, so I was going to get these other exams and they they do the exam, do the MRI, or do the regular x-ray, and they go, you look fine, I don't know what's going on with you, like, we don't know what to do. Um, and then, uh, the reason why I actually came to see Dr. Blaskovich was, um, uh, it was in 2018, and I, in hockey, a guy um, just lightly bumped me in the front of the face, and I was having, like, post-concussive symptoms for, like, two or three weeks after that, and having neck pain, and I was like, Am I seriously like this susceptible to having a brain injury or even just a light bump is making me concussions these days? Like, do I have to completely stop doing anything where I have the risk of even bumping my head lightly? And so I went and saw a few uh, different specialists and got some craniosacral massages. <coughs> and then my dad was seeing Dr. Blaskovich and said, hey, why don't you go see Sasha? Um, I was telling him about what, what you're going through and he thinks that he you know, might have some answers for you. So then I came and saw Sasha. And like right away in that first session when I just described what was going on and what some of the major head injuries were that I had and how they happened, he knew right away that it, oh, your neck's probably damaged. Like it's not your brain, it's probably your neck. Mm -hmm. And so then um, after a few more sessions together, then we did the motion x-rays and then on the motion x-ray you can actually see um, when you're turning your head where that uh, ligament is failing and where the, verte uh, yeah, where the vertebrae are um, collapsing onto that uh, bone stem. See, and I, I, like, I think there's, like, when we have real-time, like, knowledge about how people are feeling, so, like, we do, we get it. Like, I think, like, that's obviously, like, the reason why you've come so far into, like, this concussion research, because, like, like you get it. Like, you're living it, like, every day, like you said, you know, like, so, like, you see somebody like Ethan, like, you immediately know and you feel and you understand, like, what he's going through. So, like, the level of comfort there. Like, my question is, is, like, why are you the only one really doing this in Western Canada when, like, how, like, it seems like, like, concussions are really big these days, and it seems like people would want to hop on board with being on the cutting edge of that, even if they were strictly, like, I'm a professional, I'm well-respected, but there's obviously a, a financial part of this, too, where, like, people want to be, like, the top person in this field. Like, you know, why aren't more people offering these services, or why do they have access to them? Like, like what's the deal there? 
I think it boils down to um, tradition. So it's traditionally a concussion. We've, we've been beating on this the, the whole the whole time here that concussion has been stereotypically uh, deemed to be just a head injury. Mm -hmm. And most, if not all, medical professionals, whether it's mainstream medicine, physical therapists, even my colleagues in massage, have been taught that, <coughs> and that's what they then also preach. And if you're not living it, and I know a couple of other people around North America who are medical professionals who actually live this, and, and they all get it, and they only get it because they live it. And the vagueness of hearing people tell you this stuff that you've been taught to, to follow concussive, um, the diagnosis of concussion, so all these things that equates to diagnosis of concussion, you're going to continue to practice that unless you either hear enough times that, hey, you know what, my patient or someone's patient that I know has gone to see somebody who's had their neck checked and they found issues that are likely causing these concussive symptoms and you get to the point of going, hmm, I wonder if I should look into that and then go actually research it. I think a lot of medical professionals will actually be quite intrigued at how much information is out there that shows that this is a, a valid um, reason for why these people are continuing or having concussive-like symptoms or continue to have concussive-like symptoms. And then from the patient's standpoint, um, they've also been, I'm gonna use the term indoctrinated into the notion that concussions only occur in the head. And so because the entire entirety of society uh, predicates the, the word concussion with head trauma, um, there's not a whole lot of push for looking into the neck. And I do it, and I'm the only one that does it in this geographic region simply because it's what I have and it was the only answer, or it was the only thing that gave me an answer to the problem that I was looking to have an answer to. And it's the only thing that then led me on a path to figure out, for me, what's the best way to mitigate the symptoms that I'm having based on what I now know. And again, tying back to the beginning of this, luckily, blessing uh, or fortune by misfortune, having already decided to become a, a chiropractor and then having the educational training of a chiropractor, which gave me a groundwork for knowing how to research these things and where to look and, and how to interpret it from a biomechanical standpoint, where it all makes sense to me. And when I explain this stuff to other medical professionals, it makes sense to them too, but it's just so uh, out there when you compare it to how concussion has been di diagnosed or defined for the last you know five to seven decades that this whole notion that there's a neck underneath that head and it's the more i look look at it now and, and, and when i'm doing research in the evenings and stuff like that i'm starting to hear snippets more and more of different professionals in, in highly uh, respected areas of medical science such as neurosurgeons starting to have aha moments and starting to incorporate into their communications or lectures that hey there's a neck underneath the head and we're finding a lot more now that when we address the neck issues that we're finding that we didn't look for before, that people are having actually pretty good results with uh, surgeries and other things that they're doing that are not focusing on the head at all. So that was gonna kind of be like you know like a question um, that I wanted to ask too is like when you go to conferences and you like you do these lectures and the, these speeches like is the information well received or is it still like we want to believe what this guy's saying, but like it's just kind of out there a little bit. So, like, 
but like you you kind of already alluded to like people are coming along this line like like are they are they like hopping in a pinto or a ferrari to be able to get there there it's very well received received the information but again it requires them to go back to their daily practice after a weekend and say i'm going to incorporate that stuff i heard about and most of us medical professionals know when we've been to a seminar uh, or some kind of a conference and we learn something exciting and new that we think we want to incorporate, we get back there on Monday and there's a, a pile of stuff waiting for us to do that distracts us from being able to implement something that we may have thought was exciting. And by the time we get to the point of going, you know, maybe I should think about that thing that I learned, it's too late. It's already so far gone into our the back of our memory banks that we just keep going on autopilot. And so even though it's very, very positively received when I um, explain this to other medical professionals, um, they're just too busy in what they're already doing to do anything themselves about it. And there are a significant number that basically when they have someone come into them where they suspect them that something triggers what they heard me talk about, they will then refer the person to me to get assessed and then get referred back so that they can incorporate a better treatment plan <clears throat> with the knowledge of, hey, do they have damaged ligaments or don't they? And if they do, which exact ligaments and at what location so that they can address those particular spots and anything else that the person might be feeling as far as symptoms may just well be a peripheral response to the core problem that is where the ligaments are damaged so they can tailor their treatment plans better. And so that's happening more and more. But I think uh, <clears throat> it's such a, uh, it's such a unique area of healthcare or, or medical science that um, is not taught. You can't go and get it taught to you anywhere. You actually have to self-learn it, which I did over the last 20 years. And so for somebody else to just pick up and go, hey, I'm going to go get myself a motion x-ray machine and, and do what that guy's doing, uh, I think it's possible. But I think once they would try to get into that, they'll realize how um, incredibly complex it is. And for me, it's become much more simple simply a because I live it and anybody who would go and try to you know replicate doing this without actually living it and knowing what they feel and then hearing somebody tell them the same stuff it's really hard to I think build a passion and create sort of an enthusiasm in doing that type of work because it's it's not exciting for most people it's partially not exciting because they don't live it so they don't see the, the magnitude of it and secondarily, it's it's extremely extremely complicated. And I see like it, so it being so, compli- sorry, so the stuff yeah. I talk yeah. about. This is twenty six years of me researching and re researching and re you know iterating this stuff, where it becomes almost a common common conversation that I can have with people and myself. But it didn't happen anywhere nearly overnight. See, and like you know, like as we know, like when when you when you experience it every day. It's the subtleties that you're going to be able to connect with which actually make the biggest impact versus somebody who just learns this information who doesn't live it or hasn't experienced it. And that's when you're going to get like real treatment plans that are effective. You know, and like as you're talking about too, like I, I see kind of like one of the biggest barriers that like we know with like healthcare professionals in any field is that like the problem of just being overworked and just not enough time. You know, where, like you said, like, you know, like you teach these people and like they are enthusiastic to be able to like implement these strategies. But then you get back on Monday and you're just like, okay, reality kicks in, you know, like, and we're all human beings, no matter like what profession you're in. And like, that's going to be like a, a problem there. So, um, 
what are some of the things? Because I know that you, you and Ethan, you're you're creating like this program or like something's going on. Like I want to be able to touch on that too. Like let's kind of bring it all back around. Like like what's going on? Because like I've specifically tried not to probe Ethan with too many questions because I want to just be able to absorb it all at the same time that everybody else is. You know, list, listening to this podcast too. It's like like what have you guys done? Like you know, you guys have worked together, you formed this relationship together. Like like what's happened? Fill us in. I'll let you tackle this one. For sure. Well, what I think is like the most difficult about concussions is it's like a silent injury. Um, like you don't just like looking at me, I look fine, but I have neck pain right now, or like I might have a headache or something like that, or someone might be really concussed and just looking at them, it's not like they have a broken arm or a broken leg. So with concussions, like I feel as uh, a lot of medical professionals, they can't actually understand what the problem is because they haven't experienced it themselves. They haven't experienced because basically all mental. Uh, kind of injury. It's not like a physical injury. Um, so what what we've done is we what what we wanted to do was t- touching back on him talking about how um, you know the the medical system is about thirty years behind in terms of their literature and what they're recommending to patients and whatnot. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to research what are like the cutting edge research um, studies that are going on right now. Um, what are they saying about brain injuries? Because there's been a whole lot of uh, uh, studies that have come out in the last like seven or eight years on concussions um, just because there's been so much more um, talk about concussions and awareness about concussions mm-hmm. and so we wanted to really kind of look at what's all the sci- new science that's coming out let's put this into a course where someone can access it online so they don't have to come to a doctor um, like if they you know some people fly out to see Dr. Blaskovich for sessions but that can be really expensive so we wanted to figure out how can we get the latest cutting-edge technology, um, all of Dr. Blaskovich's years of experience with working with thousands of patients, and and put it all into like a format where someone can access it from anywhere in the world, at any time, and be able to go back review it over multiple times, so that um, like Dr. Blaskovich was talking about, if you just see it in one seminar, after a week you're going to forget 90% of the information that you saw. But if we put it into a video format or a written format, then after a week you can go back review the content again. And if you review it multiple times, you're more likely to retain it and to implement it into your own life. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've created Dr. B's Concussion Recovery Kit. Um, we've uh, co-authored a book, and uh, so we basically put in the book uh, a lot of the information that we've talked about with regards to concussions, what they are, um, as well as whiplash and neck injuries and how they factor into a thing, uh, into a head injury. And um, yeah, essentially the the kit is it's kind of like a first aid kit for concussions. So uh, when you have a when you have a concussion, if you've never had a concussion before, if you have had concussions before, and you haven't got the proper medical treatment before, this is like a kit that you can buy. It's like a first aid kit for concussions. So it has all the information that you need to know in order to make habitual changes in your temporary life in order to optimize the healing environment in your own body, and then it also provides tools like supplements. Uh, blue light blocking glasses, Dr. B's trigger pointer, and other things that will help relieve symptoms or help improve the healing environment in your own body. Mm-hmm. So we've really kind of taken like a holistic approach to it. And so um, one of the issues that we see in like the traditional medical system is they'll focus in on one specific symptom or one specific problem and just try to nail that thing out. But we think, especially with concussions, because it's a brain injury and a, a nervous system injury, you need to really optimize the entire body. So you need to get rid of the inflammation that's present in the body. 
you need to supply your body with the right vitamins, minerals, nutrients, so that it has the tools to start re repairing itself. And um, we really just believe that the body has um, all the information, all the knowledge to repair itself inside. If you just create the, the optimal environment, it will do the work. Um, and so that's kind of what we've done uh, in terms of putting it all into one package. Um, we want to make it easy for people to access, um, easy for people to follow, um, and really just you know help help people um, recover faster from concussions because we've seen um, you know how bad concussions can be in our own lives. We've been led down years of you know uh, issues with problems of symptoms and things like that, only to then find out that it's something totally different and unrelated and. So we really just want to try and streamline the whole process for people so that they can spend less time in pain, less time with symptoms, and get back to their normal life. Which is very much like a, like an Eastern medicine, like holistic approach where it's like, like our body knows what to do. We just need to give it some resources to be able to do what it naturally knows what to do. And exactly. Stuff. So yeah. um, like, how, like how do people access this kid? Like, like where do you, where do you go to get it? Like, you know, is there like a website or like how do you purchase this kit that they kind of bring us down that route too? Yeah, so you can go to uh, concussionrecoverykit.com and uh, that is where our website is where we'll have information about the kit. Um, we're going to be setting up a free webinar if you want to get some more information on this. Um, we also have a free concussion test, so if you think you might have a concussion, you can go onto our website there. Uh, it's like seven questions, it only takes a couple minutes, and then that will give you a, a percentage probability of if you might have a concussion or not, and then some next steps. And I think um, that would be a good thing for you know, a lot of healthcare practitioners or people that would be the front line of somebody coming in with a possible concussion is to, to have them do the uh, free online concussion test. Because mm -hmm. they may be questions that they're not either knowing or remembering to ask the, the patient or just for you know, ease of the, the consult, maybe just don't, don't actually ask them. So if they can just refer them to that free concussion test, mm -hmm. then any person who thinks they may have been concussed and run that test and, and get a good determination as to whether or not it's probable that they have been concussed and then they can take the appropriate measures uh, from there. Well see and like the easy part I see behind that is because whenever we go see a doctor of like any kind or any kind of professional work we're always sitting in a weight room we always have a phone we always have access to the internet so it's something if it only takes a couple of minutes it'd be really easy to be able to refer people down that road and then they could access those results in in real time at that moment like when they actually walk in um to be able to like you know kind of go through and start their treatment protocols and stuff so um so the one thing i actually kind of wanted to ask dr b is that like in in a perfect world, like if you could create this global program for like concussions, like like what do you see that is like this is obviously the beginning of it. Like this is like the tools and the resources, but like like what is like in your mind, like what is an adequate like concussion program that like if you were to implement this in you know like in offices worldwide, like what does that look like? It would start with a thorough questioning of exactly how they were concussed and uh, if you're blessed with the ability to have video footage of the actual event uh, to be able to see that and correlate it to what the individual tells you follow that up with a motion x-ray based on the person qualifying for that on um, their recollection of how the event happened the vectors involved in the actual injury if they did indeed sustain ligament injuries to their upper neck, and that would be my starting point, I wouldn't even start with the head. 
to, to be honest, uh, when it comes to this, uh, as far as diagnostic imaging. And that's simply, again, through 26 years of um, ordering up uh, tens of thousands of brain MRIs and, and brain CTs or head MRIs or head CTs that are all normal. <coughs> so I would, I would automatically now, by default, based on their quality, qualifying on their symptoms, um, do a motion x-ray. And if that was the case, um, implementation of the proper um, trigger point or, or ischemic compression techniques to the particular muscles that would be put to task in the specific areas where the individual has visible ligament damage. Mm -hmm. And that I think could be implemented anywhere based on, you know, very uh, streamlined training. So then like how many like motion, um, like x-ray machines, like mm -hmm. are there available where like if you had like a system that you know, people could follow, you know, like, and then you guys have, like, this concussion toolkit, you know, where, like, where people can understand it individually. They take this information, like, to, like, a healthcare provider, you know, somebody like yourself, and, like, in the field, would they have access to this? Like, are, are motion x-ray machines, like, ready available to, like, most people, like you said, or, like, Ethan was not. mentioning that? Mm -hmm. They're not. Like, what There's two in Canada. Two in Canada. Where's the other one besides, in, obviously, in the... In Ontario. In Ontario. So, like, like... So you're gonna be quiet. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, it's kind of well, almost well, discouraging when you're well, looking at, like, the proper treatment. It is discouraging, but unfortunately, um, that's just how it is, and, and that's I think it's going to be like that for the unforeseeable future. Um, but the benefit of this is that, assuming that the, the treating physician understands what the intent is of the motion x-ray, um, people come here all the time for a single visit where I assess them and do the motion x-ray and give them answers to go back to wherever it is that they come from with that information. And then it's just a matter of the treater being open to wrapping their mind around something other than stretching, strengthening, adjusting, or some kind of a mobilizatory treatment technique and implementing these very simple, but you know, very effective acupressure or ischemic compression techniques to specific muscles in specific positions and so there's a bit of training involved in that and so the person could get the treatment done on them wherever they come from assuming that their treating physician understands the motion x-ray and the implications of the information obtained from the motion x-ray and is willing to potentially um, come out of their mold of how they do things and then do this for this particular patient and give that a chance and see what happens mm -hmm. and I think based on the results that we have here, that I have here with people that come in literally like uh, falling apart a piece of human uh, tissue and then actually getting a, uh, I guess a new new take on life, at least for a period of time, which is, I think uh, for some cases as, as good as it can get with this type of stuff, but it's it's dramatic for, for a lot of people. <clears throat> and. Um, Moreover, the ability to see someone more than just once here, I usually make an attempt to try to train them on how they can treat these muscles themselves and which exact muscles those are, and so that they can at any given time try to address the ischemic compression type techniques on themselves wherever they are, whenever they need it. 
I, I got uh, like two more questions before we wrap things up here, and one for each of you guys. Um, Dr. Peterson, since we're kind of talking right now, maybe I'll start with you, is that um, do you see the benefit in having kind of like uh, like creating like a like a like a little refresher course or like a little tutorial for like healthcare professionals that you know they can kind of be prompted to kind of keep coming back to whether it be like a notification the email notification or like you know like a like a push notification saying like like hey don't forget to be able to check for these things because like like concussions and concussion symptoms like they as you just alluded to like they dramatically impact people's lives yeah. every single day that they're alive. You know, so like if our healthcare professionals like are kind of forgetting or want to, but don't really check, like, like it kind of seems like you, like you guys have bridged like this great gap in arming people with like the tools and the knowledge. You know, we kind of need like a little bit of the full circular. Like, do you see like something happening like along those lines, or um, do you think everybody's kind of stuck too much in their own mold to like want to walk down something think, along those lines? No, or? I think for most medical professionals, this will make sense, mm -hmm. and I think because. It's so hardwired in our brains that you know, the more times that they hear it, um, whether through some kind of a reminder or from another colleague or just by a presentation that's being done, the more it starts to register and the more it becomes a regular thing that they've heard about, the more it's going to kind of be at the surface when they have to make a decision on what to do with the person. They're going to be prone to saying, oh yeah, there's that thing. And I think the ultimate subliminal message that I think any medical professional that deals with people that come in with proposed concussions should be think about checking their neck, think about checking their neck, think about checking their neck. And I think that starting point is where medicine needs to sort of direct themselves towards because there's, from a physics standpoint and a physiology standpoint, like I said in the beginning, um, unless you take two drum cymbals and smack them into somebody's head like that, I think it's really, really difficult for an isolated head injury without having any effect on the neck. Mm -hmm. I just think that's physiologically um, not impossible, but extremely, extremely difficult to not have those two be somehow co-affected mm -hmm. in the trauma. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and so then my question for you, Ethan, is how refreshing is it to know that somebody like Dr. V exists or that like there is this avenue that you've explored and that you've seen positive results from because you've just ran into these walls like all the time, like continually, like 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 what was it like to finally find somebody like Dr. V? So like you kind of give a little bit of insight because I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, like either like, you know, parents or people who have like, you know, been lived with like concussion symptoms that are gonna listen to this that have been fighting that same battle where like, you know, like I just like, I know I feel this way. I don't really know how to be able to articulate it. And I don't really know where to go get a proper treatment protocol that are just like that want to feel better. So like how nice and how like refreshing was it like when you finally found Dr. B and you're achieving the results with them? Well, it was a great relief. Um, one, one, like I was feeling a little bit like depressed and kind of, you know, a little bit worried as well because before I met Dr. B just recently before that, I had watched the movie Concussion, um, where it's all about CTE and the football players and everything. And I was like, oh crap, like, you know, maybe I'm going to be one of these guys with CTE and like, you know, going mad at 40, like maybe only have 15 years left of good, of like, you know, good brain function. And that was like really bothering me. Um, but, you know, once I found Dr. Blaskovich and he explained that it's like a neck problem and it's because your neck is unstable that it's hitting the brain stem, those are triggering the symptoms. 
um, it was a really big relief because then I knew that, okay, like, um, it's not a problem with my brain, it's a problem with my neck instead of my brain, and, um, yeah, it, it was it was a big relief. Um, because I would even feel, too, like, if somebody says, you have a problem with your brain, that's going to carry this certain type of magnitude. But if somebody's like, this is a problem with your neck, you're like, oh, okay, I got this. Cool. Like, you know, I, I can deal with this now. But if it's like, you're like, oh, my brain, like, how how do you fix that? You know, like, like I think it's going to be a problem goes. with your brainstem. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's still yeah. the same magnitude as brain. Yeah. Because it's been indoctrinated into all of our minds from, from a young age for the last 70 years, I think, that that's the important thing. And it is, mm-hmm. and it is, but all the information from there has to relay through the brainstem to a body part, mm-hmm. and all the information from any body part has to re- re- relay through the brainstem to the brain. Mm-hmm. And so those two regions, the brain and the body, can't communicate without the brainstem. Yeah. And so it's it's a very it's very logical if you really if you really think about it and hear this that you know that could be the the, the golden area that uh, has sort of eluded medical triage when it comes to these types of problems and unfortunately you know some people will take their own lives as a result of um, looking normal but yet feeling extremely abnormal and then being very irrational to loved ones and family members and highly irritable and snappy and all that stuff where both sides don't really understand each other. And eventually, you know, the person who's been injured realizes that they're not the person that they were, thinking that that's how it's got to be from now on. And there is an actual improvable solution to that. But them not having that solution and not realizing that's possible and they end up taking their lives because they no longer want to be that um, ill person that you know, treats everybody around them like, you know, like garbage, even though they don't want to, but can't simply just can't control that outburst. Mm-hmm. So and I've gone through that, and I still occasionally do go through that. My kids have become a little bit more accustomed to the fact that, hey, you know, when Daddy's acting like this, it's not because there's something wrong with you or he hates you. It's because he's trying to process something that <clears throat> is keeping his cup full. And if you come and, and you know ask your question or do your thing, he may not respond the way that he did yesterday. And he's not a different person. Uh, he's just, so my kids are starting to understand that because uh, I'm trying to teach them some of this stuff too. I think it's very valuable for them that. That he's going to go into the into the bedroom and use his use his cane thing to work on his neck muscles, and he'll come out of there a new person, which I do. And so then everybody's better as a result of that. And that doesn't linger on for you know a day or days or weeks or months, where we basically get on each other's cases uh, for all the wrong reasons and without the actual intent. It's just it just happens. And so when a person's cup is full because their brain and their their, their nervous system is, is processing all these different pain and dysfunction stimuli. There's no room left for, hey, uh, daddy, can you come look at this? Or, you know, daddy, 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 or, or the spouse comes in and says, you know, you didn't do that, or whatever else. That's, there's just no room for that to be, you know, an acceptable thing that you communicate about. It's just a snap. And so uh, I know that a lot of people go through that. And when I have, you know, uh, a couple, for example, sitting across from me where one's injured and the other one's accompanied them as a second set of ears to hear all this stuff, I'll inevitably talk into the injured person. I'll say, you know, these are moments where you feel like, you know, you're, more irritable, uh, your fuse is shorter, and, and while I'm looking at them, I can see their spouse going like this basically every single time. Their loved one is basically they're waiting for a moment to basically say this is a different person, or they're acting like a different person on occasion. It's extremely common, and, and uh, it's important for both sides to understand that there's an actual physical reason for that. And when I can show them the motion actually and say this is showing as, as being damaged, and this is how it's affecting the person's brainstem, and that ties into all these other neurological cascades of 
of events that lead to them not being able to basically um, respond in a, in a neutral way. Uh, they both get it in a lot of cases, which is is, is good to know that you know, able to provide that for people where they can understand, have a better understanding, and hopefully go away from here with the notion that hey, you know, he doesn't, you know, this this other person, it's not that they dislike me now, and for them it's not like they're a nag all the time, but they understand that when my cup is full, I'm going to snap at you, and he's going to snap at me because of the fact that he's processing this stuff that I can't see, but now I know as a physical entity that is, is leading to these things, they can both go away from here with a, with a better understanding knowledge of you know, when this occurs, that nothing is personal between either side, it's just that's what's happening and it's going to pass. Well, and I think like probably like the, the biggest point to me that like you just mentioned, there's like you really brought like a human component to where like you're humble enough to say like, I go through these things too, like, like my wife, my kids are impacted by this. I'm impacted by this. This is what I know. So like, again, it's not that you're just personally living it. Like you also like are willing to be humble enough to be able to bring in like the human experience be like, I know that your spouse is being impacted. I know your children. I know that your friends and your family is being impacted by this too because I'm impacting my social network, you know, by these symptoms too. Like, this is how I know. This is what I can do. These are the strategies that we can implement and stuff. So. Um, again, like just a ton of great information. I really honored that you guys came on today and stuff to be able to talk about this. And like, hopefully, this won't be the last time that we'd be able to get to sit around and uh, and talk concussions and stuff. Because I just I think the conversation needs to be um, like need to be had more. There needs to be more education on some like the innovative practices that are coming out and how there's different things people can look to and towards you know, to be able to help prevent, you know, like concussion symptoms or, you know, like when parents, you know, with their children's or in sports or like a spouse, you know, like I see this, like how it all nicely wrapped up at the end, like even like a spouse being more like, like empathetic, you know, to like their child or their spouse, you know, you know, in this situation like this where they know and they see it because like, like that alone can save marriages and families and everything, just having a little bit more empathy for well, you know, another I person, think it right? It can also save a life too if a, if a loved one, a parent or a spouse, um, doesn't take it personally with this knowledge. Mm -hmm. I think that that individual who's considering, hey, you know what, this is this is just going to keep getting worse, and I, I don't want to be around for this. And, and because I love them all so much, I'm going to you know, finish it off here so that they can all live a better life. And that's ultimately, I think, often why it happens. Mm -hmm. Plus the fact that. You know, the headaches will be gone and the, and the brain fog will be gone, but ultimately I think if the family and, and the loved ones get a better understanding of what's happening, they'll help the individual going through it be able to um, deal with it better on their own. Because yeah. they won't feel like they're out sort of in the middle of nowhere by themselves as this ogre, <clears throat> but that people around them will understand. And it's hard for the people around them to understand. And uh, I mean, I can take my hat off to my wife and kids because uh, you know, there's times where I can't apologize enough for you know, how snappy I was and how unempathetic I was for a certain situation, and I shouldn't be, but uh, it's too late by the time I've already reacted. The sort of the myofluid response precedes my brain being able to uh, metabolize the fact that I probably should take a deep breath or two before I you know, react or do whatever, but it's too late by that time. And so I'll take my hat off to them for, for all these years for basically A, putting up with that, and B, sort of coming to to amends with the fact that they start starting to understand why and I think it's sort of a mutual understanding that the more that I'm learning about this the more that they're learning about this and so um, it'd be nice to have a, you know, like people out there who are also having these types of types of dynamics conflicts within their you know, loved circles to be able to you know, have
have that same uh, ability to, to have both sides understand each other from, an, uh, from a standpoint where it's not very, uh, it's not ambiguous for most people, it's ambiguous. They, they think that, you know, both sides think that they're doing something belligerent towards each other that has no cause or no reason, where it's actually the exact opposite, where either side can communicate why or how. Yeah. Um, while, while we wrap it up, I, uh, Dr. B, like, how can people, if they want to express your services, how can they get a hold of you? And then Ethan, um, again, just like redirect people to the resources. So, um, like, like, um, like your like clinic name, you know, like phone number, email address, like website. Like, how can people get a hold of you? And then again, like Ethan, like, let us know about like the online tools with the sure. key you guys have created. Um, creatively named, I named the clinic uh, the Whiplash and Injury Clinic. And we have this location in Langley, BC, and I also have a location in Linden, Washington, on the U.S. side. Um, both clinics uh, under whiplashclinic.com. Uh, there's phone numbers there. Um, alternatively, what has been happening more and more is that when people from abroad, and there's people from Europe, from Australia, from Asia, from wherever, that uh, somehow through the grapevine hear about the experiences and the knowledge that I've obtained in, in dealing with this myself, they um, communicate with each other and, and, and they're trying to access me and so there's a separate website that was created for that particular purpose where a lot of cases they don't have to physically visit me they most of the times already had particular imaging studies done whether they're MRIs or CT scans and I, uh, I gladly look at those for them and, and provide any input that I might have on little subtleties that I've come to know are actual tip-offs for these particular ligament injuries if then followed up with certain types of uh, specialized imaging could be confirmed and so they will send me that stuff and I'll look at it and I'll report back to them and so that's drblaskovich.com, drblaskovich.com and on, on, in there people can basically either uh, sign up as a user and send, send me a message and the messages for the time being now still come directly to me and so I will, I will personally answer every last one of them. So why not, uh, before Ethan uh, takes over here, why not just explain people how to spell Blaskovich? Sure. B-L-A-S-K-O-V, as in Victor, I-C-H. Awesome. Perfect. Blaskovich. All right. Ethan, uh, takes over on uh, on how to be able to access these tools and like the like the concussion kit. For sure. Yeah. So um, you can go to concussionrecoverykit.com. Uh, that's the homepage on there. We have links to the free concussion test that we talked about already as well as links to the pages if you wanted to actually purchase the entire concussion recovery kit. Um, and then you can also go to concussionrecoverykit.com slash webinar if you want to sign up for a free webinar um, where we talk about a few secrets to healing concussions. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. Again, it was an honor to be able to have you guys on, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to be able to educate all the listeners on like concussions and like the newest and latest, greatest like you know methods and protocols that revolve around concussions. Thanks Thank you for helping us, us. Uh, helping us share this.